The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, if you uh, want to open your Bibles to Genesis 49, Addy read this just a few moments ago. Um, we are going to be starting there and then we're going to be moving to Matthew chapter 2 and then John chapter 2 as well. Um, we're in a series at the moment called God Incarnate. And the background for this series is that sin's intrusion into God's creation wreaked havoc on the world and continues to wreak havoc on the world, continues to poison and fracture relationships, continues to destroy life. And there's this promise of a Messiah, this, this anointed one, this king, this, this one who would come to, to set things right. It's this, a promise that God made that a person would come and unwreck things, unwreck what sin wrecked, and bring life, true life, to the world. Sin forced God's creation under a curse, and God sent a Messiah to liberate those who are under the curse. And this is good news for us, because it means that in whatever way you have experienced personally the sting of sin this week, whatever way that you have felt the the weight and, and the burden of that curse, you can know that the curse of sin, because of Christ, has a use by date. There's going to come like that. Christ has redeemed us from being under the law, redeemed us from being under the curse of sin. And there's going to come a day where that redemption will be made fully complete. We'll be brought into the new heavens and the new earth with new and perfect bodies, and we'll worship God forever. And sin will be no more, death will be no more, all those things will be no more. And that's the good news we're celebrating at Christmas time. That God sent the Messiah, God sent his son to start that, to begin that, to release the captives free, to set the captives free, to release those who are held captive to sin. If you're feeling weary and heavy burdened, maybe from the weight of, of just life, the burdens of life have piled on. Maybe the last few years, it's just been this slow trickle adding to it bit by bit. And like, it's like a stalagmite, it's, it's built up and it's become this thing that it's now hard to bear. Maybe, it's, maybe the, the burden is stuff that is decades old, but you're still carrying it. Maybe you're feeling worn out and weary and burdened because of the sin in your own life. The stuff that you're, you're struggling to shake, the stuff that you, you hope nobody finds out about you, the stuff that you just you wish it were, weren't there. Know this. God sent his son, the Christ, the Messiah, to bear that burden for you. That's what this Advent season is about. That Christ came to bear the burdens of our sin. So what we've been doing in this series is, is looking at the Old Testament, working our way through very, very quickly through the Old Testament, looking at the various hints and the prophecies about the coming of this Messiah. And as you go through the Old Testament, the picture of who this Messiah is, what he's going to be like, becomes clearer and clearer. So in Genesis 3, which is where we started off, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, sin comes in and, and God says, I'm gonna, there's going to be one from the a descendant of Adam and Eve. 
It's going to be a person, and he's going to be the snake crusher. He's going to be the one who destroys Satan forever. Then we move to Genesis 12, and we looked at Abraham. And there we learned that uh, this, this, this Messiah would be a blessing, the redemptive blessing to, to pry his people out of sin. Today we're looking at Genesis, and we're learning that the Messiah is not just a person. He doesn't just come from the, from the family of Abraham, but the search gets narrower. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah, and this Messiah would actually be a king. There's a person from the family of Abraham, the tribe of Judah. He's going to be the one who destroys evil. He's going to be the one that saves, rescues people, redeems them from sin. And then he's, today we're looking at he's going to be the king, the one who rules over his people. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this passage. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Holy Spirit, by your word, would you illuminate the path before us this morning? Not just for these few moments, but, Father, as each one of us is looking ahead to this next seven days and next few weeks and whatever holds, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate that path with the word of God this morning in us, in our hearts, in our lives, in our eyes, Lord. Holy Spirit, I need you this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak into our hearts, into my heart, into the hearts of everyone here. And Lord God, you will be glorified and made much of in that Father, where my words have uh, existed, it's not your will, or would they disappear, but where your word comes through here, Father, would that persevere and remain in our hearts always, Lord? Jesus, we, we, are, we, we want to commit, we want to give these next few moments to you and offer them to you and, and submit ourselves to you and, and ask, Father, that you would be glorified and, and that we would be grown, Father. So Holy Spirit, we rely on you, we're trusting, we're waiting for you to come and to illuminate your word to us this morning. Amen. Uh, a number of years ago, and, and I believe I've shared this story before, but I'm just going to share it again. Um, I was working with Red Frogs uh, down at Schoolies. If you're not familiar with what Red Frogs is, uh, there's a Schoolies event that happens uh, mostly down in the Gold Coast each year as Year 12s graduate. And the Red Frogs is a group of, a group of Christians who turn up to the Gold Coast uh, to just basically make sure that the Schoolies are taken care of and are loved and we, we demonstrate the love of Christ and we serve these Schoolies and essentially try to keep people safe. And uh, I was there with a team, and we entered a particular hotel room, and there was these uh, two girls in this hotel room, and they were not in a very good way. One of them, we think they'd both taken something, but one of them uh, was semi-conscious on the couch. The other one was having a psychotic episode. And we called the paramedics because we needed more help than we could give. And so the paramedics were on their way, and I was on the phone to the, to the person on the line, just kind of making sure that we're keeping them updated about what's happening. And as we were talking, we, we realized that this girl on the couch, that her, 
her state was getting worse. She was, um, she was going downhill. Her breathing was slowing right down, and we, we communicated this to the, the operator on the line, and she said to me, you need to start CPR immediately. And so uh, I started CPR. And um, now I've, like, I did a first aid course 10 years prior to that, and so I kind of remembered, the, I mean, I've seen plenty of movies, um, but I was suddenly out of my depth. I was suddenly like, the, this was suddenly very, very real to do this. And fortunately, um, after only one cycle of the, breath, of the mouth-to-mouth and chest compressions, the paramedics entered the room and took over. <laughs> and I was so relieved because I was like just for one thing you shouldn't do chest compressions on someone on a couch because the couch absorbs they were just bouncing her I was like oh I realized actually that wasn't to put her on the floor I'm so glad that someone came along who knew what they were doing somebody with the training somebody with the authority to actually take over that situation and take charge of that situation when the right person is in charge it's good for everyone (laughs) especially in that situation. When the Bible says that Jesus is king, it means that it is his right to rule and to reign, and it also means that it is good for everyone when he does so, when he's in charge. It's a good thing for us when Jesus is in charge. And the passage that we're looking at today, Genesis 49, lays the groundwork for that truth. Just to give you a bit of a background, uh, these words are coming from the mouth of Jacob. And Jacob was actually the grandson of Abraham. We looked at Abraham last week. And Jacob was reaching the end of his life. And he brought his 12 sons before him so that he could prophesy over each of them. And in this prophecy, as he's speaking to each one of his sons, it's this very unique moment because he's not just kind of sharing his final words for his sons that are there, but since they kind of represent humanity more broadly... He's not just speaking to those guys. He's speaking really to all of humanity. It's, it's what he's saying is, is important for the whole of the human race. And in that room, the question lingering in the air would have been, which one of the brothers would be left in charge? Which one of the brothers would receive the blessing that had been passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac and then his son Jacob? Who in this next generation would be the one who would receive this blessing? Which brother would inherit the covenant that God had made with Abraham and the subsequent generations? Now, typically, that role, that honor, would go to the eldest son. But all you've got to do is turn a few pages left in Genesis to realize that this family hasn't done things the way that most families would by, because of God's decree, because of God's providence over them. And so it was really up for grabs. But in God's perfect will, Jacob passed this mantle, uh, the, the leadership of the family, not to Reuben or to Simeon or to Levi, the older three, but to his fourth son, Judah. He says this in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion or a lioness who dares to rouse him. These are stately and commendable words. Judah is the one who has chosen to lead the family. His descendants will be the tribe that we should be watching for. 
If you're reading through the Bible left to right, you kind of want to be keeping an eye on Judah because of these words. The fulfillment of God's promises to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham and to all of Israel are going to be happening in this tribe. Judah will have preeminence and success amongst his brothers. They will bow down to him. Their descendants will bow down to his descendants. His, his, his tribe, his descendants will be ferocious like a lion. They will be the leaders. It's where we get the idea of the lion of Judah from. Then in verse 10, Jacob's blessing looks beyond Judah, beyond his son, into the dawn of the Messianic age. So like in Genesis chapter 3 and like in Genesis chapter 12, these words aren't just words that are intended for the people in the room at that time. These words are intended for all of mankind. It has eternal consequences for the world. Jacob says in verse 10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, or the staff from between his feet, until he whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Now, the idea of a scepter and a staff conveys rule and reign. Basically, whoever's holding the staff is the king, is the one in charge. And by saying that the staff will not depart from Judah is to say that the true royal family of Israel would come from Judah's descendants. And this is, of course, what happened. If you, if you go through and read on, King David, who was chosen by God, anointed by God, is from the tribe of Judah. And his descendants, his son Solomon, and then sons after that, grandsons, the descendants after that, they were the ones who, who formed the royal family of Judah. And this prophecy doesn't just say that this is how things are just going to play out. Like, this is the royal family, so this is just how it is. But actually, rather, this this royal family, these descendants, is leading up to a particular point until he whose right it is comes. In other words, one day, a particular king will come and he will be the final king. He will be the king to end all kings. The scepter will be rightfully his and the obedience of the world will be rightfully his also. It's a massive claim and it points directly to Jesus. Jesus being from the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David, he is the one to fulfill this role. And you can trace through the genealogies of, of Jesus that are listed in the Gospels. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the King who is rightfully entitled to our glad obedience. Jesus is the subject of Jacob's words to Judah. The question we've got to ask though is, why is it good news that Jesus is king? How is that good news? Like, What, what difference does that make to us? The, we all know, like the idea of a king is quite foreign to us. Yet we do actually have King Charles III as our ruling monarch, but, but I would hazard a guess to say that what he's doing today, what his life is like, that doesn't really have a huge bearing on our day-to-day -day life. The category of even having a king is something that is quite lost on us. We don't really have a lot of felt experience with. How is it good news that Jesus is king? 
Well, even though it's not our common experience to, to have a king, we all know what it's like to have a boss or a supervisor, someone who is in charge. And you might have had the experience of having a really terrible boss at some stage or another. I've had some employers in the past who have been wonderful. They've been excellent. They've been fair and just. They've been helpful. They've been the kind of, the kind of leaders, the kind of bosses who have actually uh, helped the, the workplace to grow and, and have created a, a good, healthy work environment. I've also had other employers, however, who haven't been like this. They've been toxic people. People who have uh, gossiped, who have played favorites, people who have uh, been unfair in their dealings with their employees, they've made life difficult and it creates a horrible work environment. I know that some of you here this morning are currently in workplaces, you shared this with me, you're in workplaces where it's kind of like that. Your, your boss is, is a bit of a toxic person and it makes going to work really, really difficult. It, it, it's a bit of a miserable lot going to work. And this is where the idea of Jesus being king, it moves beyond something that is just interesting for us into something that is actually life-giving. Jesus in charge means joy for us. Jesus in charge means peace for us. Jesus in charge means hope and stability amongst chaos. Jesus in charge means life. His loving and sovereign rule trickles into our lives and breathes life into death and decay. And Jesus' rule, the Bible teaches us that Jesus' rule is without boundaries. It is, it is without end. There is not an inch in the universe, nor is there a second or a moment in time where Jesus is not sovereignly in charge. This is good news for us. Jesus' rule means life for us. But for many of us, the rubber doesn't really hit the road for that until we realize that Jesus' rule extends not just all the way to the farthest reaches of the universe or over all time, his rule also extends over our hearts. We live in a day and age where that promotes and celebrates individual autonomy to the degree that we've basically given our hearts the supreme authority to decide what is right and wrong in this world. Our hearts are the ones that are in charge. It's our hearts that rule and reign. Whatever we decide in our hearts, that's actually absolute truth. The Bible regards our hearts as the motivating center of our beings. It is our agenda, where our intentions come from. And our culture seems to have written a blank check for our hearts, basically putting a megaphone on our hearts and declaring that our hearts are sovereign and everything that comes from our hearts should, is absolute truth, truth and should not be questioned. This is proclaimed loudly and proudly in our movies, in our music, in the stories that we hear and the stories that we tell that our hearts are the ones in charge. They have absolute authority. They are the ones who decide. They are, our hearts is what rules and reigns. And it's here that the statement, Jesus is king, does the most damage. You see, Jesus is king as a statement can be interesting. We might even agree with it in principle, but applied to our hearts, it's striking and offensive. The claim of the gospel, 
is that Jesus is Lord. Christians are those who say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the declaration that Christians have made for the last 2,000 years. For our brothers and sisters in the first, century, first few centuries, the statement, Jesus is Lord, got them into all sorts of trouble because they were saying, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And for us, the statement, Jesus is Lord, gets us into, into trouble because we're saying, Jesus, not my heart, is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And this is the meaning of Genesis 49.10, that the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. God did not send Jesus Christ so that we could put him amongst other options and then decide if we'd like to have a try or not. It's either Jesus is Lord and we bow the knee or I'm the one in charge and we reject Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. That might sound exclusive and narrow and that's because it is. A king who shares the throne is no king at all and should not rule. If we think about it, the fact that Jesus does not share his throne is perhaps the thing that our, that our world finds the most offensive about Christianity. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this might be your critique too. Why does God care who I sleep with? Why does God think that he can tell me what to do with my money? Why do I have to go to church? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know what I've been through? Doesn't he know the, 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 the struggles that I've had? Doesn't he understand that I'm actually, like he might say this, but does he actually understand my situation, that I'm the exception to the rule here? Doesn't he know that I'm in charge? If, if that's you, maybe the idea of Jesus as Savior sounds really appealing. Why not, right? Someone who pays our debts? Sounds great. I mean, sounds wonderful. But the idea that Jesus is Lord is a lot less appealing because to say Jesus is Lord is to say that something or someone else isn't. Say that Jesus is Lord means to say, he's the one in charge of my life and I'm going to submit to him. And when Jesus is Lord collides with our autonomous hearts, we see sparks. We even see explosions. One such explosion occurs in Matthew 2. If you want to turn there. Uh, In Matthew 2, the ruling authority in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth was a man with high political aspirations. He's known to us as Herod the Great. He was the one in charge of Jerusalem at that stage, but he was an imposter. He was not a descendant of David. He was not even from the tribe of Judah. In fact, Herod was barely even Jewish. He was a pretender. And one cold night, some wise men from the east showed up in the city, seeking the one who had been born king of the Jews. Now that line there, seeking the one who had been born king of the Jews, I never really understood, I never really kind of paid much attention to that phrase, born king of the Jews. But it's important, like... It seems to be that Matthew's pointing that out, that Herod was not born king of the Jews. Herod had politicized his way into it. Herod had had married uh, a princess from the Hasmonean family to get into this this, uh, influential family. 
He had kind of muscled his way into this role, but Jesus was born into it. The scepter was rightfully his. The scepter belonged to him. So Herod, under the advice of the chief priests and the scribes, uh, sent these wise men to Bethlehem saying, hey, go, go find this king. He's going to be in Bethlehem. And report back to me when you find him so that I can go and worship him as well. And it's important to note that Herod had no intention of sharing the throne, let alone giving the throne to this child. And this is where the, the sparks and the explosions start to occur. The wise men found Jesus. They gave him those gifts. They worshipped him. And then being warned in a dream, they returned home a different way. They, they didn't go back through Jerusalem. And then verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. That's a part of the nativity play that our kids didn't act out last week for obvious reasons. This is a heartbreaking, ruinous, and awful tragedy. But we would be remiss if we didn't think that the same desire to remain on the throne didn't also lurk in our hearts within the reality of our sin is that it does not go away quietly. And when the gospel makes the claim that Jesus alone deserves to sit on the throne of your hearts, that he alone has the right to rule, that he alone is entitled to our obedience, that Jesus alone is Lord, we should not be surprised when our hearts resist that truth. If you right now are walking through some difficult eradication of sin in your life. If you're feeling right now like there's this thing, there's this something that's just, it's so hard to get rid of. Understand this. It's because Jesus is making a claim of lordship over your heart. He's making that claim of lordship over your heart. And we need to be submitting to him. This collision occurs when, when we think our money is our own. This collision occurs when we think we have the right to do whatever we want. This collision occurs when God's word challenges the sin that has been welcomed into our hearts. This collision occurs whenever there's a place in our hearts or our lives or something that we're, we're doing that, that Jesus comes in and, and starts to say, hey, that shouldn't be there. Like, are there, are there parts of your life are there parts of the Bible that as you read that you kind of skip past because it's just too challenging? Kirsty and I have been doing uh, an Advent devotional by um, Sinclair Ferguson. And he's going through 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. And today's devotion was love is not irritable. And I didn't like that one. It irritated me. And the reality is, is that God's word irritates me all the time because I think I'm the one in charge. And we've got to be submitting our, our lives to God's rule. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. But it's not just that Jesus is Lord. 
It's also that Jesus is better. He's a better king than you and I could ever be. He's a far better ruler than you and I could ever be. Our hearts, they will lie to us. But Jesus will only ever tell us the truth. Our hearts will always deceive us and we'll believe our hearts. But Jesus will only ever be honest with us. Our hearts will insist that we are more important than anybody else. And Jesus in his kindness comes and says, hey, you're not. I, Jesus himself is the one who is important. And he teaches us to be humble. Our hearts will always lead us down paths that lead us to disappointment. But Jesus is the one who truly gives life. Jeremiah says, our hearts are more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand them? When Jesus was sent into the, into the world as the Messiah to right the wrongs of sin, he came to restore and to redeem us from sin. He came to forgive sin so that we would be made righteous and be reconciled to God, brought into that perfect union with God. Jesus rules in our lives in the exact way that we so desperately desire to be ruled. He's the kind of king that our hearts ache for. He's the king who laid down his life that we might have his life. He's the king who eternally removes our sin when we put our trust in him. He's the king who requires nothing of us to be saved and that's why he deserves our total allegiance and obedience. He's the king who did not stay in the grave, but he rose from the dead, making it possible for anybody who trusts in him to also expect the resurrection, resurrected life after death. He's the one who brings us into the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies so that we can enjoy God in infinite, unending bliss. Jesus is a better king than we could ever be ourselves. Those who trust in King Jesus can look forward in eager anticipation of the hope and the return of our King. This is part of what Christmas is about. That we're not just looking back to the time that Jesus came, but we also long with aching hearts of the, of the time where Jesus will one day return. To, he will finish what he started and bring eternal life for all those who trust in him. And it's going to be a glorious day. It's going to be a wonderful day. And as we enter into the new heavens and new earth, every single moment, every single week and month and year of agony and depression and anxiety and frustration will totally make sense and be worth it in light of the glory that we'll see in the bright, shining face of Jesus Christ, who welcomes us into eternity, saying, well done, good and faithful servant, bringing us into eternity forever to enjoy the rewards of righteousness that he has given to us. Not that we've earned, not that we've created, not that we've, we've worked hard for, but the righteousness that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And it will be a time of unending bliss, of, of spectacular prosperity that will outshine everything else that we've ever experienced on earth. And that's what these final few verses in Genesis 49 entail and point towards. It says from verse 11, he ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now, 
that's a fairly rich set of metaphors, right? And their meaning might be lost on us. I know when I first read that, I was like, what on earth is that about? I actually was thinking, oh, I won't even preach on that. I won't even touch that. But actually, it's wonderful. This is the, this is the image of someone who is enjoying absolute and extravagant prosperity. The key to understanding these last couple of verses is the wine. It's the image of a vineyard owner who has just had the biggest harvest ever. The yield of grapes is so high that he can tie his donkey to a vine. Even a young, untrained, stupid colt of a donkey to the best vine. Who cares if the donkey sits there and chews on it and eats the the best part of the vine, munches it and destroys the vine altogether? Who cares? This guy doesn't. He's got plenty more. He's got such abundance that he he can substitute wine for water that is designated for washing. Not that you'd ever do that. Because you just everything would be stained with wine, but that's how that's how much abundance he has that he's got more wine than he has water almost. This vineyard owner is so rich in wine that his his eyes are darker than the wine itself, and his teeth look whiter than milk behind his wine-stained lips. It's a really rich metaphor used to describe the enjoyment of wealthy abundance. It's someone who's just got more than they can give. I mean, imagine someone blowing their nose with a $100 note. That's kind of the, 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 the gist of this passage here. And believe it or not, this too is talking about Jesus. I'm indebted to James Montgomery Boyce for helping me understand what this is actually about and helping me be pointed to how strangely and wonderfully this points to Jesus. You see, in John chapter 2, Jesus performed his first miracle. It was at a wedding, and they had run out of wine. So Jesus, because his mom told him to, did something about it. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish purification. Water that had been designated for washing. And Jesus turned that water into wine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. And it wasn't just any wine, it was the choicest wine from the finest vine. And verse 11 says, Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's important. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' first miracle made one thing very, very clear. The Lion of Judah, the Messiah, had arrived and his people believed. Here's the point. If we want life, if we want the kind of abundant life that the scriptures promise us, if we want to experience a foretaste of heaven, believe in Jesus. And I don't just mean believe in Jesus as some kind of ethereal osmosis thing, like we kind of vaguely agree that God exists and that this thing happened in history and we, 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 we subscribe to that and we have mental assent to that, yeah, sure. No, believe in Jesus means to submit to him as Lord. To truly believe in Jesus is to submit to him as Lord, the king who has your obedience. 
The promise of God's word is that those who submit to Jesus will have life. And at the other end of his gospel, John wrote that the reason he wrote the the gospel out was so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The reason John wrote his gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is Lord, and that by believing that that's true, that he is the one who is in charge, he is the one who we, we should pour our lives out for, he is the one who we should submit our, bow the knee and submit to, he is the one who is truly in charge. By believing that, by living that, that is the path to life. Not being in charge of ourselves. We are so often tempted to think that if, I'm, if I can be in charge, I know what's right for me, I know what's best for me, I'll plan this out. And we get frustrated when we pray to God for certain things to happen and they don't. And we ask questions like, why doesn't God answer my prayers? The answer to that question is that God's better than you. He knows, what's, he knows more. His plans for us are far better than we could ever plan. And sometimes I think I've got all the answers. And by sometimes I mean 99.9% of the time I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got all the answers. And when things don't play out as I believe they should, I get irritated at God. But the path to life has actually gone, no, what, what his plans for me are, that's what's best for me. He's the one with authority. He's the one who should be ruling and reigning in my life. And the reason why is because Jesus is alive. After the story of the wise man in Matthew chapter 2, we'll just go back to there for a moment. There's this little innocuous sentence that we often read past in verse 19. It simply says, After Herod died, Herod's dead. Like he was a significant figure, but then he died and the world moved on. And he got three words of a eulogy in the Bible after Herod died, move on. The pretender is gone. But then in Revelation 1, when John, when John sees Jesus in his true glory, when the curtains between heaven and earth are pulled back and, and John is given this revelation of, of who Jesus truly is, Jesus, it freaks him out. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever. Jesus was dead. And then he was resurrected. And he is alive forever and ever and rules and reigns forever and ever. Jesus is Lord because Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He is bright and stunning in dazzling splendor. When John had this revelation of who Jesus was, it says that he saw Jesus as he truly was, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. This is Revelations 1, 13 to 16. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. Anybody hear the storm on Wednesday night? Anybody not hear the storm on Wednesday night? 
Like that was absolute. You didn't hear the song. You're fast asleep. No worries. It's totally fine. You know what? You know what crazy heavy rainfall sounds like on a tin roof. Cascading waters. That's what Jesus' voice sounds like. Unavoidable unless you're Evelyn and fast asleep. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like was shining like the sun at full strength. Don't do this. But if you were to stand and stare at the sun for like a second, Jesus' face is brighter than that. He's the Lord of glory. What happened? John said, when I saw him, I fell down like a dead man. Jesus is the Lord who serves. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the Lord of wisdom. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Jesus is the Lord of the ages. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is the Lord of holiness. He is singular in his perfection. The angels around his throne perpetually cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus is the Lord of power. Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jesus is the Lord who is present. Again in Jeremiah God says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There is nowhere that the Lord is not. And there is nowhere that the Lord is not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of judgment. He will bring perfect justice in eternity. God says in Isaiah 61, for I, the Lord, Love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Jesus is the Lord of grace. He bestows limitless favor on those who don't deserve it. Paul says in Titus chapter 2 about the coming of Jesus, he says, For the grace of God has appeared. It didn't say Jesus has appeared. It says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus is the Lord of righteousness. Romans 8.34 says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can condemn us? Like honestly, you can't even condemn you when you're in Christ. Jesus is the Lord of love. He is brimming with unconditional love for you and I. Romans 5.8 says that God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the Lord of destiny. He has written our future. Psalm 138 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Jesus is Lord. Entrust yourself to him. Jesus is better. Entrust yourself to him. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.